Yeah, please do remember the Asheville mission team this week. We were supposed to commission them or normally would have commissioned them last week and Jake and I both forgot and did not do that much to our regret. So uh, we did that yesterday in the parking lot, but please remember them and they'll come back and give a report uh, in a couple of Sundays from now. Um, we are in the middle of Second Thessalonians. In fact, right in the middle of it, there's three chapters. We're on chapter two this week, but before we get into it and read the text, I just have a question for you. Have you ever been hacked? Either your email, your social media, impersonated, anything like that. Don't you hate it when that happens? When somebody pretends to be you? Uh, maybe you haven't had that. I have. Apparently as pastors we get targeted and they make fake email addresses that look like us that aren't us and send things to you guys to buy gift cards. Don't ever do that. Um, if that comes from me, that's not how it'll happen. Um, if we were to ask you to do that, it would not come in that way. But anyways, I don't like that. Somebody pretends to be you just to trick others into doing something and, and subscribing to something or whatever it is. And man, it's annoying. We think, man, today's world, today's problems. Really? You don't think that ever happened before? Because what we're about to read shows you, you happened to Paul. Different, not email, but letters. Yeah, let's read. You'll see. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's where Paul gets hacked. This is the word of the Lord. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by a letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. In all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to uh, to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. 
May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We're told in the Bible that the grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God is forever. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that your word that is true and is forever will be relevant to us today. Help us to see that. Help us to find our hope in you. Help us to walk in your ways and give us the delights of our heart that are for your love and your law. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I remember as we turned the new millennium, which seems like forever ago, but those of you who remember this will remember Y2K, right? Year 2000 and like, oh no, the world's going to end. The computers can't flip to the next year. Once the computers crash, it's doomsday. The markets will collapse. The grids will go down and everything will go crazy. It didn't. In case you were wondering. COVID global warming, fear of nuclear attack from Russia's invasion and war with Ukraine. I mean, we could go on and on. There's always something going on around the globe that could be considered or feared about or worried about or cause alarm of some kind of doomsday scenario, saying the end is here. And as Christians are a minority and opposition increases, some worry about more direct persecution. But what we should get, and what Paul is saying is, don't be alarmed or deceived by fraudulent teachers about the end, about the second coming of Christ. And question is though is, okay, when's it going to happen? And you may have noticed that Paul didn't give any fixed time for that. Nor did Jesus himself do that, right? We don't know when that's going to happen. Here's what we do know. There will be signs of it, and we can look for signs. And we should stand firm and hold fast to the faith. Those are the two things we know. We can look for signs and stand firm and hold fast to the faith. So I want to I talk about those two things. Um, this, there's a lot in this text today. And for some of you who love Bible study and want to dig in, there is no way I'm going to be able to get to everything in here. There's a lot. And it ties back to so many prophecies and things. So we're going to hit it at a level that we can hit it at in the time we have today. And if you want to look into it more, please do so. Um, but here's some of the signs. Did you notice one of the signs was, no, this second coming hasn't happened, Paul says, and it won't happen until the rebellion occurs. The rebellion. Well, there's lots of rebellions, but Paul is talking about a very specific rebellion. It's not just a passive, don't care about God, I don't care about the church or something like that. It's not even falling away from Christian faith or the church, which is dangerous and serious, but that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about the rebellion and active, direct opposition against the church, suppressing, opposing it, and directing people to worship one who is not God. Not, not mere worship of idolatry of things, not mere ideology, ideology no, a person, to worship a being, one, who is not God. 
And so that's what Paul is talking about. We saw that rebellion in verse 3. But then he goes on in verse 4, which we can put on the screen. And he, he identifies this specifically as a person because he uses that, that language. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And so it's this man of lawlessness that is mentioned that is being talked about. This man of lawlessness will do this. This language of this opposition and this desolation that's going to come is drawn from the book of Daniel, which, which we read from earlier. We heard part of our confession coming from that book and God's name being on his people, but this desolation that would come. And in chapter 7 and 8 in Daniel, it's prophesied and talked about this one that would come and cause the, the abomination of desolation and, and, and desecration in the temple. And... Um, that was fulfilled before the first coming of Christ in the second century BC as Daniel prophesied there was one who came named Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed the temple like sacrificed pigs in the temple told everybody to worship him as the God that is and um, he was the the apostasy that came then in this language that Paul is drawing from that, what he is saying is just as before the first coming of Christ, there was a great apostasy. So before the second coming of Christ, there is going to be another great apostasy. There's another one that will come. A defection of those who heard the gospel, but were not true believers. Those who turn to oppose and a man of lawlessness rising up, demanding the worship of others, claiming to be God oppressing and suppressing those who are true worshipers of God. And those, those who are apostate, that term apostate refers to those who, who once heard, understood the gospel and turned and walked away from it. That's, that's apostasy. And you say, well, how does that happen? What, what, what does that mean? Well, I, we would say they were not true believers. That they, they heard, they tasted of they were curious about, they, they even for a while lived in the rhythms of that, but in the end didn't stick it out because they weren't true believers and they walked away from the faith. Even Jesus talks about this with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 13, he tells them a parable of a sower, which you probably are familiar with, a farmer that goes out and sows seed and it falls in different places. And right after that, he tells them a parable of wheat and weeds. And he says, so there was a farmer who sowed um, wheat so that it would come up and then there was someone who uh, uh, sowed bad seed weeds that also grew up among the wheat and the disciples say well she, should we go rip out all the weeds and Jesus says no because you may damage the wheat in doing so but when the last day comes the wheat will be bound together to be gathered up into the barn and the weeds bound together to be burned for destruction now in all of that what is Jesus saying He's saying that within his church and within those who are followers of him, there's going to be true followers and followers who aren't true followers, but are around. And this is what Paul is saying too, this apostasy that's going to happen will reveal those who are the true followers and those who are not. I think this man of lawlessness is the same one that the uh, apostle John refers to in his first letter, 1 John 2.18, and calls the Antichrist. Or the Antichrist, right? And some of you have probably heard that before. And what does that mean? Well, anti against Christ, right? The one who sets himself up to be like Christ, but is not Christ and is directly opposed to Christ. Who is that? Scholars and commentators and Christians since the time of Jesus have wondered that. 
So since Jesus died and rose from the dead, early Christians wondered if the emperor Nero was the antichrist, calling for worship of himself and burning Christians on torches. Was he the antichrist? Well, and then the end didn't come, and so it goes on. And throughout history, people would proclaim different people. Even some of the Protestant reformers said the Pope was the Antichrist. Others said maybe it was Hitler or Stalin. I mean, we could go on, right? And, and on. The, the point being is this, that we don't know who the man of lawlessness is. We don't know who the Antichrist is. But it will be revealed when Christ comes and deals with him. So it will be right at the end, right near the end. What we do know is that in each period of time, from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, in these last days that we live in, we all witness someone who is evil, who is wicked, who is opposed to Christ, who is a forerunner, a type of the Antichrist. Because Paul tells us in verse 7 that lawlessness is already at work, is what he says. Notice he says the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But he's saying, but there's still one that's going to come after that. And so we should expect to see forerunners, types, wickedness, little antichrists. Not the man of lawlessness or the antichrist that is to come. And yet that will all culminate in one person in the last days, is what Paul is saying. And this person will come with, um, with, with the rebellion and exalt himself and with displays of power and signs and wonders as we're told in verse 9 as it described that. And it says this lawlessness will greatly intensify as the end nears. This person will be popular and powerful, will gather a large following of worshipers. And even with all this power, we're told in verse 8, a glorious truth. That he is doomed to destruction. And that Christ will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. That's good news. Right? Because that means, I mean, notice that language, the breath of his mouth. Like, right, to make a joke or be funny, we could say, what does he have, bad breath or something? What does this mean? What, what does it mean that he destroys him with the breath of his mouth? Let me ask you this. If somebody comes with signs and wonders and all kinds of power and they've got a following, look at all the people I've got. And somebody comes in with this breath, can win? How challenging is that competition? Not very. <laughs> right? Like, easy win. Christ comes with an easy win. But it's not just that it's an easy win. There's more to this. What is the significance of breath? Breath is life. Christ is coming as the resurrected living one. The living and breathing one. More than that, if we were to think about breath throughout scripture, God creates the world as he speaks with the breath of his mouth. And the spirit, the breath. God speaks word and things happen. He creates mankind and breathes into him the breath of life. What is being said here is God, when he returns, can simply breathe and speak and vanquish the enemy. No more. No more. This is interesting because it's also different from all the movies that we see and all of our superheroes that we adore, right? Superheroes have 
powers from something that they, outside of them that they get. Like, they're, like Batman and Iron Man have technology, which is super cool, and I wish I could have some of it. Um, and, but fr from that, they can do amazingly powerful things, right? Um, but then there's other superheroes that maybe they're not using technology. Um, Thor has a hammer, right? Like, as this god figure person. Um, or maybe it's just chemicals from other planets that they discover that are new and not on Earth, and so that gives them extra power. Or maybe they're mutants and their DNA changes, or, or they get bit by an animal or a spider or something, and it gives them power. The point is this. All of those superheroes get power because of something outside of them that they somehow acquire to make them powerful. And Jesus does not need anything outside of himself to make himself powerful. Because there is nothing outside of himself that can make him any more powerful. He is the most powerful thing. And so when he comes, what secret is he going to tap into? <sighs> I breathe. And when I command, it happens. Because I am the ultimate one. The creator of the universe, the giver of life, the redeemer of souls. And the victor over evil. That's what he's saying. And Paul's saying, that is our hope. Even though those, this intensity of persecution will rise and this man of lawlessness will be, be there, Christ will vanquish the enemy. And so while you and I may be worried about some rising opposition to Christianity in America, we do need to, to just pump the brakes and check ourselves. Because if you go check the list of persecuted countries around the world, America doesn't make the list. Right? There's, sure, there's changing of tides. There's more opposition to the Christianity than there was 10, 20, 50 years ago. But we don't yet face the persecution that other countries face. And we should be thankful for that. We should be grateful for that. We should be watchful as well. I don't know if the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will come out of America or somewhere else. So we don't know. But we do know that there are forerunners and you should beware of them. Beware of those who claim power, gather a following, demand to be worshipped, who want to be the God of the day and demand your allegiance. Those who claim the power to save you and say, your God can't help you right now, but I can. Those, be very wary of those. Little forerunners of the Antichrist. And then, at the end of these signs, there's this transition that Paul covers here in verse 11. And it says that they are sent a delusion from God. For this reason, God sends them, sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And you may be going, what, what? Why does God do this? What is happening? God is causing the delusion? It's saying that God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And note that it says, for this reason. What is that reason? Well, that reason is mentioned in verse 10 where it says, they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For that reason, God sends them a delusion so that they believe the lie. But you need to notice a couple of things about this. They are guilty. They don't believe in God. They don't love the truth. They don't want salvation. And so God gives them over to their delusion. He does not intervene. He gives them over to it. He does not show them mercy. He just says, you go into your delusion. That's what Paul is saying. It's what he says even more clearly, I think, in the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. 
we'll put those verses on the screen and just show you what he says here. So notice the two things that are happening, the people's desires and what they're doing and God then giving them over to those. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to the sexual impurity for degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. What Paul is saying is, as wickedness goes through the world, what we see is people pursue the desires of their heart and their lusts. And God says, okay, I'll give you over to that delusion. It's not out of God's control, nor are they... Uh, nor are they not responsible. They bear responsibility for what they're doing. And God gives them over to that. And this is what Paul is saying here. This delusion is going to occur and God's going to allow it to occur and send, send them to, to believe the delusion so that they believe the lie and they can stand responsible for what they are guilty of. That's a weird tension. Maybe like, I, I don't know if I'm more clear or not. Here's what I can tell you in the Bible. What it constantly tells us. God is the sovereign one and he's in control of all things. There is not a single molecule that can exist outside of his knowledge and his control. If there were, he would not be God and with power to control all things. At the same time, people are responsible for their actions. They are moral agents, responsible and accountable for what they do. God's in control and people are responsible. And while we don't understand that as finite creatures... God does, and on judgment day, he will reconcile all things to himself, and people will be accountable. It's critically important, then, to realize two things here. First, remember, they are perishing because they are guilty of refusing to believe the gospel. Second, sin has a deceiving, deluding, and hardening effect. You need to be very careful about the deceitfulness of sin in your life so that you do not walk away from the truth. To be a weed rather than the wheat. To be one of those in the apostasy. And I have seen people do this, walk away from the truth and walk away from the church. And it's dangerous because sin is deceitful. Delusions come with it. Now God is good and I've also seen him bring people back into the church after years if not decades of wandering away. God's mercy is a beautiful thing and it reaches to dark places but still sin is dangerous. Beware. So those are some of the signs. Let's look at standing firm in the face of persecution that will come persecution is going to come in every age it's going to intensify and the standing firm in the face of persecution he says do this because of the salvation in which God has chosen you and he talks about it in three ways by believing in God's salvation by holding fast to the teaching of scripture and by finding encouragement believing in God's salvation we see it in verse 13 and 14 will you put those verses on the screen we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And in verse 14, he called you to this, gospel, to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So there you have it. Like, through those means is what he's saying is how God is bringing about his salvation. It is good news. The evidence that you are a follower of Jesus is because of the work of his spirit being applied to your life, both in his justifying grace and in his sanctifying grace. What does that mean? He's saying you are saved means you are now justified in Christ. Justified is a theological term, but it is to say it's a legal term saying of reckoning you're not guilty. You're clean, you're clear. There's no charges against you. If you want to try to remember in a way, it's, you can do this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at you, if you are justified in Christ, it is just as if you'd never sinned because Christ has borne all your sins and they're all satisfied. And that means then that you cannot earn your way, buy your way, or negotiate your way into heaven. All you can do is admit you've got nothing and that you need everything that Jesus has to offer you. And if you get that, then you are freely justified in Christ, saved. But it also means that there's a sanctifying work of the Spirit, which he says, through sanct the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that means that after you are justified, God will continue to work in you to begin to change you, to change your desires, to change your habits, to conform you to be more and more like him. It will be a struggle your whole life with sin. There will be some things you will find some victory over and some you will continue to battle until the day you die. But you are in that. You're going, okay, God, how are you working in me? What am I to be doing and learning and knowing? You can ask yourself this. If, if the sanctifying work, that is the cleansing or the renewing work of the Spirit is happening, ask yourself this. Are you growing in disgust over your sin? Right? Because sometimes we sin and we like it. Sometimes we sin and we're like, how, why did I do that again? How, how did I do that to that person? I feel so horrible. Are you growing in disgust over your sin? That's a sign that the Spirit is saying, yeah, that's wrong and you should learn to not like that, to hate it. But on the flip side of that, you can say, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you growing in those ways? And if so, that's a sign the Spirit's working in you. And these are good things. And so what Paul is saying is stand firm by believing in God's salvation that both justifies you and sanctifies you. And if you see that in your life, you're standing firm in his salvation. And he also goes on and he says that you're to do this by holding fast to the teaching of Scripture in verse 15. There's where we see to hold fast to the things passed on to you by word of mouth or by letter. Now what Paul is saying to them is, what I taught you is the truth and what I've written to you is the truth, not the fake news stuff. But what I sent you is what's true. And hold fast to that. In other words, we could say what Paul is saying is hold fast to scripture. As Paul is teaching them from the scriptures and the apostolic writings that are being solidified as they teach here, hold fast to the scriptures. You know, a question about this is, do you love them? Do you, it says, do you love the truth? Love the truth. Not just know the truth. Do you love the truth? Why is that important? Because we live in an educational world of educational systems. From time kids are little through high school, college, graduate school. And we learn. We get information and we shove it into our brain and we learn and now we know something. 
And we think of knowledge as very intellectual. And what Paul is saying here is that you are to not just know the truth, but love the truth. In other words, it has to touch your affections, your desires. Does it get to the desires of your heart? And it means then, too, we don't add to Scripture or take away from it. You've got to beware of adding to the gospel. There's still somewhat popular movement that is generally referred to as the health and wealth gospel, which is trash. But it teaches something like this, that you need to be saved by God, but you'll know that you're really loved by God and truly saved if you are blessed and you have good health and you find wealth in life, material success. And if you are healthy and have material success, this is a sign God is blessing you and you are doing something right. And if you don't, you're clearly doing something wrong. That's adding to the gospel saying we need Jesus plus this is a sign that we've done enough good stuff to be blessed by God. And that's not what the gospel teaches. Let me give you two good reasons why that's not true. Because if it were true, then you should believe nothing that Jesus said or did. Because he neither had health nor wealth in his human form. His disciples, the apostles that went out from him, all but one of them were killed for what they believed. They didn't get the healthy, wealthy life that was free from conflict or persecution or opposition. No. Jesus said to his followers, you, you should expect some level of opposition that people won't like you just as they didn't like me. Now that does not mean you need to walk around being a jerk to everybody because that's not the fruit of the Spirit. You are not to try to solicit and antagonize people to get the opposition. It will come enough. If you live your life for the Lord, there will be some people that will see you and go, yeah, I'm not, I don't think we can be friends. You're like, okay, I will love you. We might not be friends, but I'll love you. Nor should we take away from Scripture. Because if we love the truth more than we love what we want to do, we can't take away from it. And that means like those who would dismiss Scripture and say, well, I don't know, that's kind of old and maybe that wasn't for me and I really feel like God wants me to do this. I'll be the truest form of myself if I can do this. So I'm just, I'm not going to listen to that part of the Bible. I, I don't want to hear that. That, that doesn't apply to me. That's dangerous. Because that means there's not a love for the truth, there is a love for you. And everybody loves themselves. But you have to love the truth too. And that's probably a whole other thing we could go into that we don't have time to today. But let me wrap up by going to this last point and saying this, that we need to find encouragement. You can stand firm in the face of persecution by believing in God's salvation that he has for you, for which that Christ has done and accomplished for you, by holding fast to the teachings of scripture, and in verses 16 and 17, by finding encouragement. Notice how he ends this. He says to them, after warning of all this hard stuff that's going to come, but may our Lord Jesus Christ himself... And God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. What are you saying is, yes, to go forward, you will need to be encouraged. And you can get that directly from God and indirectly. 
He says directly, may God do this for you and give you this, this eternal encouragement. And so you should pray and ask God, God, I need strength. I need to be encouraged in the struggles that I face in my own life. Battles with sin and I need to love the truth. God, will you encourage me in that? God, when I face opposition from without, from people who are standing against me, will you encourage me to stand firm on your truth and to love people well? But also indirectly from God, through other Christians. Yeah, you should get encouragement from other Christians. You might say, well, where do you see that in the text, Pastor? And I would say, it is the text. What do you think he just wrote to them? Be encouraged. Here's my letter to you. Paul, to the people of Thessalonica, be encouraged. And so then we too are to be like, we need to encourage others. Like Paul does that, we need each other. You need the church. I need the church. You and I need people who will encourage each other to stand firm. And to do that with gentleness and patience and kindness. But love for the truth and stand firm. So that leaves us with the question of who are you encouraging to stand firm in the faith? Seriously, who? Who are you encouraging to stand firm in the faith? And if you're a note taker today, maybe you need to write that down. Okay, I'm going to encourage this person, this person, and this person. If not, think about it in your head. Make a list. Who am I encouraging in the faith to hold fast, to stand firm, to love the truth, to delight in the gospel, the good news of Christ for us. If opposition to your faith arises, brothers and sisters, what we are seeing here today is to stand firm by believing in God's salvation, by holding fast to the scriptural truth, and by finding encouragement from others and from God. I want to read to you part of something I read a few years back. A sister church of ours that has... Um, that Mission to the World, our, our international mission agency, has, has partnered with and helped to establish a church in China called Early Rain Covenant Church. It's in Chengdu, Sichuan. It first began meeting as several small groups in 2006 and began an independent church in 2008 with 63 members. It's very similar to Spring Run, by the way, in timing. In July 2011, they elected and installed their pastor, Wang Yi, the church now consists of about 500 people and regular attenders from a wide range of um, different backgrounds, blue-collar, white-collar, children college, young professionals, young families, 80-year-old seniors. Early rain has planted six other churches. Wow, there's similarities in this church in China and to us. But beginning in December of 2018 and continuing to this day, early rain has been experiencing significant and persistent government persecution. More than 200 members of Early Reign have been arrested. And in the winter of 2019, Elder Qin Defu was sentenced to four years in criminal detention. And their pastor, Wang Yi, was sentenced to nine years in criminal detention. In addition, church and personal property has been seized and destroyed. Many families have faced repeated eviction from their homes and deportation to other provinces. That's persecution. They wrote in September of 2019 an update that I had shared with you before that reads this. I don't have a recent update. They quit posting them on the website um, for some reason, but it still lists that they're an active church as part of this, this network in China. 
But this one says this, having been united with the Lord in his death and resurrection, we also have been united with him in his wandering and homelessness. If we suffer with the Lord, we will also be glorified with him. May he grant us faith, courage, and wisdom to face persecution and eviction in this dead city. We are regarded by the world as scum, but we are constantly bearing witness to his power and grace. And then they quote Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a pre ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, mountains fall into the sea. They are writing that because they have courage from God and it should encourage other churches. Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast because God is holding fast to his word, to his promises, to his salvation to which he has called you. Hold fast. He holds fast to you. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people in whatever we face in life, that we will find our faith deeply rooted in you, that we will love your truth, and not delight in wickedness, and that we will cling, cling, hold fast to the salvation you have provided in Christ. And Lord, we do this because we know that you hold fast to us and that you keep your promises. Encourage us in life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.